0: Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and then together we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're chatting about vaccine hesitancy. I'll be joined by Jen Brezzelli, Chief Design Strategy Officer at MADPOW. And then later on, we'll chat with Dr. Rafael Perez Escamilla, Professor of Public Health, Director of the Office of Public Health Practice, and Director of the Global Health Concentration at the Yale School of Public Health. Together, they'll talk about science communication that's designed to be effective. But first, I wanted to recognize some of our newest members at the museum. So a big thank you to Hatisha Daryani, who's a new magazine subscriber, Steve Bullington, who's a new individual member, and then Aaron Narlock, who's writing for our magazine right now and signed up to subscribe to it. So thank you three, and thank you to all our members. Your support makes this show and everything we do at the museum possible. If you like this podcast, Design Museum Everywhere has many other programs for you to enjoy, and you can be part of this global community of design thinkers and change makers that we're building here at the museum. So through our online exhibitions, live events, our magazine, we provide our members with unique opportunities to learn about, engage with, and experience design. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on membership. And with that, Onto this week's topic, what is the role of design thinking in health and risk communication, especially when audiences may be conflicted or disagree on ideological worldviews? MadPow's chief design strategy officer, Jen Brazelli, published a two-part series titled Designing Science Communication that starts to help answer this question. She explores how four archetypal worldviews influence perception and provide strategies for communicating with, and persuading, when necessary, those folks across the world view aisle, especially on topics related to health, science, and risk information. So I'm joined by Jen Brazelli, my guest co-host this week, to learn more about her work and the role of design in science communication. Jen's a lifelong learner with an insatiable curiosity and deep passion for science, education, and empowering people through design. She considers herself an enabler, more than a problem solver, because she dislikes framing every design opportunity as a problem to be solved. Her design philosophy is less about solving people's problems for them and more about building the tools, environments, and circumstances that enable people to improve their own lives. At MadPow, she does just that, leading their delivery practices as the chief design strategy officer. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank
1: you. I'm psyched to be here.
0: To start, I mean, you've spent a lot of time between like the scholars of like research around these important topics, the practitioners of science itself. Where is the like miscommunication? What's getting lost between like the folks who are doing the research in the science and maybe the folks who need to hear it the most? The really
1: important implication in what you just said was that there is a lot of good information. There is a lot of good understanding um, folks across a lot of different areas of academic and public health study have answers, and I think for whatever reason they're not talking to each other. And I don't think it's truly that they don't talk. It's awareness. It's the fact that we're we're talking about relatively disparate domains and disciplines. You know, from far-reaching areas, not just design, which we can talk about and why that's relevant, um, public health and public policy, but you know, behavioral science, uh, other forms of psychology, other social sciences, sociology, anthropology, rhetoric, you know, even understanding different dynamics in, in tribalism and other type of like cognitive theories. And a lot of the people who are doing the most cutting edge work in those fields are really immersed in those fields, but may not have a means to even see what's happening in these other domains. So at the end of the day, I I guess if I have to answer your question, which I assume I do. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> why it, you're here. Uh, yeah. Oops, I signed up for this. I think it boils down to the difficulty that we often have in connecting disparate domains. And maybe this is like a cheap uh, way for me to sneak this in, but I actually think that's why designers are so specially in a good position to help in this way, because design as a practice is a practice without its own subject matter expertise. And designers are naturally oriented to making connections between things that may otherwise not appear to have those connections. And so If we could find a way to bring more people into this problem space to build and make those connections, I think we could see some progress. I'd like to think we could. There's also a fatalist part of me that doesn't (laughs) know if we ever will, but there are other people who... Are making these same arguments, and I actually I have to like share this because this was a a long threaded tweet by a woman named Tara Hale H A E L L E. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name because I've only ever interacted with her on the internet, but she's a like-minded fellow person. I believe she's a journalist. Um, really, would be her title, but she's done a lot of work studying a lot of these dynamics, especially um, related to health and risk communication and vaccine hesitancy. But she happened to just do this really long tweet the other day, and one of them one of the tweets in the thread was, "You know, guys, my real question here is." Did any of you and this is pointed at public health folks who are saying things like boy i never would have expected that two years in we'd have people that were denying science and you know don't understand how vaccines work and i would never have expected this you know a lot of us are like we would have yeah um she writes (laughs) my single question is did you ever consider reading a single social science paper on cognitive bias, public attitude formation, tribalism, vaccine hesitancy, science communication, health literacy or anything related to these? Have you ever read anything about epistemology and I'm like that's it in a nutshell
0: but let's <laughs> there's the answer
1: yeah let's just say this though I actually have a ton of empathy like I don't want to be like all you people don't talk to each other right there there's not a lot of infrastructure for it there's not a lot of you know support for it. How would they go about doing it so, Maybe we've just hit on like the problem that needs to be solved, and that's where I think design is is really powerful to to bring and bridge some of those disparate domains.
0: Completely agree, because it's like, how did we get here, right? Like historically, around distrust of experts, there was a class, you know. Likewise, on I mean, maybe it's social media. I'm going to answer my own question, but it's like, you know, folks won't listen to like a PhD, you know, immunologist, but they'll see their crazy uncles. Facebook post, and it does seem like there's been this arc. I don't want to say it's been my lifetime because everyone, everything, anyone could probably, I don't know, a hundred years ago, probably, someone probably said, "Why aren't people trusting experts?" I don't know, but what's the human behavior before we even get into the design? What, what do you see as like the human behavior around this like denial or mistrust or distrust of experts?
1: There are a lot of people that have like spent their entire academic career kind of answering this question. So I will try to like summarize what I think. And that's based on my own study and knowledge of the work of those folks. But I don't want to make it sound like my work has answered that question because it certainly hasn't. But I, I think it's it's a function of two big things. And this might be the lens I look at them through because I tend to, because where my I've spent my time and you know the way that I orient my work to this world. Um, but I think it's on one hand that trajectory, you're right, that didn't just happen in our lifetime. We've all as a human race kind of been on that trajectory. But it's accelerated because of the availability of information, and the sheer quantity of that information. So people like unprecedented access and quantity when it comes to information, thank you to the internet. And um, that's had obviously myriad, like wonderful benefits for humanity. But I think this is one of the, you know, tricky parts of that. This is a con. Um, yeah, it's a con, let's, <laughs> let's just say it. This is, this is a downside. Um, you know, I even hesitate to say that though, right? Who wants to say we should take away access or, or reduce, right. you know, like egalitarian right. principles with information, so anyway. But I think the other part to this is also, it does become a principle of um, the way that humans engage with information that is framed in certain ways. So, you know, you're, you make the point about like, people don't seem to trust experts. They actually do. People still trust experts, and when there are good studies done, people do express very high levels of trust for scientific experts and other experts. What is changing is the definition of expertise. And uh, I'm sure there are humans out there that are going to come clamoring to say this is because folks are making an active concerted effort to like disintegrate, you know, what is expertise or to like crumble the walls and quality. And and I'm, there are some people that are doing that. There are certain interests out there in doing that. Um, There's a really great work that's several years old now by Naomi Oreskes. I don't know how to say her name out loud either. I'm one of those folks who've only ever read most of these things. (laughs) We'll have to look it up. But it was like a really foundational work that was about, um, I think it was called Manufacturing Doubt, right? And it's about some of the examples where oil companies did that explicitly and intentionally to degrade and kind of confuse trust in different experts to further their own interests. That that's still an exception. I think the main dynamic really comes down to human nature and our brain's ability to process information is limited. We have way more information available and at our disposal than our brains have evolved to handle yet. And so most of the cognitive heuristics and functions that we have evolved to use to navigate the world around us are still built on a model where if I see a fellow caveman come running out of the field, we assume he's running from something bad. So we run. And I'm going to trust that guy if he's part of my social in-group or my caveman club more than somebody standing far away who is waving his like caveman credential and saying, no, 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 it's not actually a, a predator. It's just the wind blowing the leaves." I'm still going to trust the person who is part of my group because evolutionarily speaking, there's a very big upside to, to following my social in group and a pretty big you know, downside. If I don't, I could be ostracized or I could get eaten by whatever it is, if it's a lion. So that's a crude, crude metaphor, but it's the same dynamic today.
0: Totally. And there's some really mm-hmm.
1: fascinating studies that show people tend to trust information that's being shared by people who they perceive to share their values as more accurate. So if you can find two spokespeople to convey information, and one of them just gives off the perception of having similar values to you, you are going to trust what that person says as being more accurate, and you won't be aware that you're doing that. So it's not like you're like, I like that person, I trust them. You literally will assess them as having more expertise, regardless of whether they do.
0: Yeah. Talk to me about the design strategy behind this. Like, how can design actually help get to the truth or even forget truth for a second this basic like literacy around these concepts
1: the work that i've done on this over the years really started for me earnestly um in grad school where uh i i spent a lot of time on this topic as part of my thesis work and then it extended from there but really it came out of the question how do we take a design thinking or human-centered design approach to science and risk communication and this was partly sparked by my past I was uh, I majored in physics and I was actually a high school physics teacher before I decided to transition into design so science and education are in my DNA as well and what ended up kind of coming out of this work was the realization very much like that there are a lot of really amazing insights locked in these different domains that I don't think people have ever connected them to each other so I spent a lot of time doing that Uh, you know this was a couple years ago and when I when I write on this topic or when I've shared on this topic, um, it's kind of gone up and down in relevancy over the years. So right after grad school, you know, I made the rounds. I was sharing this at conferences like South by Southwest and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Like those are wildly different ends of the spectrum. And it was very interesting for a lot of those audiences. But it kind of was not all that interesting for the last few years uh, until the pandemic showed up again. And now suddenly people are saying, wait. How How are people not responding to what the experts say we should do? This is a risk communication problem, etc. So it's been, it's kind of been precipitated by interest in the topic. Um, And that's, to me, one of the main challenges that we don't often care about this until it's already a problem. And you're not going to solve it by reacting to it, you've got to preempt it. But where does design factor in? It basically, if you ask that question, where does design thinking, um, how do you apply a design thinking approach to design or to risk communication? What that boils down to is, as a designer, if you're a human-centered designer, what are your core principles? You learn or understand about your audience, right? You have to do the work to not assume you know who they are. You, the designer, are not the user. You must understand them, which means not just building empathy, but actually using whatever tools you have at your disposal to build that understanding in a way that expands your notion of their experience or their needs and let them tell that story so kind of you know acknowledging the user the end person the audience as experts in their own experience so that's like principle number one right in design thinking really Um, and then another that's relevant here is designing interventions or tools or services or experiences whatever you're designing in a way that is designed to have a desired effect, right? Like if I had to give a very basic design definition, it's actively choosing to change the current state into a preferred one, right? That's design. Basically, that's that's kind of what this is. So now let's ask, okay, take anything that has a polarized environment around it, like climate change. Vaccine is a good one right now, but even before the pandemic, you know, you could name things like climate change. Nuclear power is another good one. Gun control is a good one. um, You know, and then I like to think about abortion, right? Big political topics, too, where you might say, well, that's enough to do with science, but I bring those up because any of the topics that we could like rattle off like this that have a real polarized kind of um, existence in the, in the minds of the public, you can understand how people are engaging with those topics based on their cultural worldview, based on um, different types of frameworks that exist. And so if I, as a designer, can, can bring those uh, frameworks to my work and say, OK, this is a means for me to understand my audience and understand why they hold the beliefs they hold then I as a designer can design an intervention tailored to that. And this is where I think some people get a little like prickly about this because they'll say, okay, say I want to try to reach people who are like anti-vax or climate deniers. You're telling me that I have to engage with them and acknowledge their humanity and talk to them like they're correct. And I hate to say it, yeah, you don't actually have to like endorse their position or even like acknowledge or say that you accept their position. But I once used this metaphor with somebody else, and it got a, it got a good effect. So I'll use it here. Dogs pick things up in their mouth a lot, right? You walk a dog down the street; it picks stuff up. You yell at it to drop it. I learned early on in pet ownership that dogs don't just do that when they plan to eat something. They use their mouth to feel and understand, so they kind of pick stuff up that's gross and garbage. Not really intending to swallow it, but just to figure out what it is, and then they'll spit it out again. And I feel like as designers, we kind of get to be or could should be good at pick something up, roll it around in your mouth a little bit, and you can spit it out. And having empathy for someone's situation, worldview, whatever, is not the same as endorsing it. So if we can kind of, as designers, use our natural inclination to to operate that way, we can understand what is going on that leads people to develop a mindset about vaccines or climate change or guns or whatever, and then design, tailor whatever we're doing. Again, whether we're talking about communication, whether we're talking about services, whether we're talking about trying to change minds or just trying to change behaviors, whatever it is, we can do it knowing why those people hold the ideas that they have. And more importantly, measure the impact of it. That's the other piece that I think makes design a really powerful tool for this is to say, let's design something, let's pilot it, let's learn from it, take a very iterative design approach. And I see that really lacking too. You know, when you look at the way that anybody in the government and public health is approaching this, I see small pockets of experimentation, but otherwise not enough design thinking.
0: Oh, wow. This is an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and breaking this down for us.
1: Yeah, you got
0: it. Listeners, to see and learn more about Jen's work, you can visit madpow.com, and I'm sure we'll post a link to the Designing Science Communications series. And Jen, please stick around, and we'll bring Dr. Rafael Perez-Escamilla into the conversation after a quick break.
2: Design Museum Everywhere's week long event, Design Museum Week, is coming soon. Join us April 25th to 29th to celebrate accomplishments, share new ideas, and inspire through design. The week will reconceptualize design's role in 21st century systems and issues through dozens of events that mash up our 12 impact areas. Workplace, business, play, entrepreneurship, sustainability, education, healthcare, social impact, data visualization, diversity, vibrant cities, and civic innovation.
0: Design Museum Week 2022 will feature five days of hybrid online-offline events that spark conversation, inspire leaders, and educate professionals working in all areas of design. While most sessions will be virtual, we look forward to welcoming attendees for in-person gatherings as well in cities across the U.S.
2: Go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events to get your tickets today.
0: We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Dr. Rafael Perez Escamilla, Professor of Public Health, Director of the Office of Public Health Practice, and Director of the Global Health Concentration at the Yale School of Public Health. Rafael is a world-recognized leader in maternal and child health, a member of the National Academy of Medicine, and also serves as the principal investigator on one of 26 CDC-funded prevention research centers. His global public health, nutrition, and food security research program has contributed to improvements in breastfeeding and other maternal, infant, and young child nutrition outcomes, iron deficiency, anemia among infants, household food security, and even early childhood development. And he has been leading a vaccine initiative as part of CDC's Vaccinate with Confidence strategy. Raphael, welcome to the show. Thank you. A pleasure
2: being with you today.
0: It's wonderful to have you. Can you share a bit of, you know, you've been working in this space. What have you sort of observed and experienced over two and a half years of this pandemic? Like, what, what does that look like for you?
2: You know, that the two w- words that come to my mind are uncharted territory. This a pandemic of this magnitude had not happened in a hundred years. And given how incredibly globalized the world is. It was uh, just incredible to see how country after country after country after country started experiencing uh, the pandemic, and then to find out that there was a lot of confusion about how to prevent the virus from spreading further. And there was confusion both with guidance at the public level, but also at the individual level. In fact, I hosted the former Surgeon General, the one with the previous administration, for an address at the Yale School of Public Health on this. And essentially, a lot of his recommendations were that masks were not needed, that uh, this was going to be nothing compared to the flu. Like, you know, much more people die of flu within a year than the numbers of people that had been affected by COVID. But this was very early, on in the pandemic so there was a lot of confusion there was a lot of mixed information and quite honestly the trump administration was very unhelpful because they were very anti-science and this pandemic really required a very evidence-based approach eh, to be resolved so what i learned eh, also is that eh, as more and more evidence became available as to the measures that were needed to be implemented. Of course, masks work in addition, social distancing, extensive uh, testing, and uh, eventually, you know, the availability of the vaccines and now even uh, promising therapies that uh, at the end of the day, this really Requires for all of society to participate for the pandemic to be brought under under control. So it became a very complex task because there are anti-vax uh, groups uh, in the country, there are anti-mask groups in the country, there are anti-social distancing groups in the country, and and there are many, uh, there are many, many, many folks. So what I learned is also the importance of a government to implement uh, mandates uh, to protect the safety of, of the public at large. I think that's something that this administration has been doing effectively and that it really for a society like the U.S., it's sort of a new concept. Like here, no one tells me what to do and I put on my face whatever I want to put on my face. So uh, we started seeing across across countries reaction from, you know, the public at large, it was was quite different. And of course, we started uh, gathering data, Uh, colleagues started gathering data showing how uh, people of color, poor people were being hit much, much more strongly by this pandemic. And the reason to pay special attention and include special investments in improving the uh, ability to empower those communities those families those people also to protect themselves against the primary infection of this virus and also about becoming very ill or ending up being uh, hospitalized uh, as a result of this of this virus so i like to to say that the COVID pandemic has been an X-ray on the very inequitable social structures that we have, we have in the world. So when it comes, for example, to one of my core uh, focus of research, which is maternal child health, well, uh, women and children, uh, their their nutrition, their access uh, to healthcare, uh, the ability for Many moms, for example, in low and middle income countries that work in the informal economy to be able to bring food to the table, how strongly, how negatively it was affected, has been affected and continues to be affected by this pandemic. So I teach a course that's called uh, Global Health Foundations, and the focus right now has totally shifted on really the students being able to critically think as to why we have in place the global health governance that we have that decided that all the high-income countries will, will hoard all the vaccines available and uh, almost very or almost none or very, very few uh, of them uh, becoming available for many, many months in low-income co- regions of the world like, uh, like sub-Saharan, like sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, that is also something that came to mind, that, uh, that came to light as a result of the pandemic on a very macro macro mm-hmm. level, that the governance of global health is, is in the hands of the most powerful countries, of uh, the richest uh, folks, and that at the end of the day, the big lesson for the world from all of this to, to end, my, my answer to, to your question is that uh, no matter uh, how wealthy you are, no matter... You know, how much access you have to healthcare and food and so on. A pandemic means that it will not end until it ends in every single corner of the world. So, you know, that question going back is going to be why did it take so long? I wonder,
0: and Jen, feel free to jump in on this as well. I'm curious if, like, like you said, Raphael, this is uncharted territory. And I wonder, as we're thinking about like communication to the public, would it have better been better to sort of say, we're not sure? Right? Like we're also learning right along with you. Because I just find so many of the anti-vax groups, anti-mask groups point to those early communications that were presented as like fact and presented as like surely we do not need masks. They hold on to that. So I'm just curious what you think about like experts actually sharing that we don't know right now, <laughs> and being more honest.
2: Yeah, you're spot on with this question, because I think that when it comes to health communications, we have an a D minus or an F in, in the U.S. with regards to explaining the public what the virus is about, what the COVID-19 is about, and also Explaining the public in a very coherent way, what is the guidance based on what we know for sure almost? What is the guidance based on our most educated guess, and which is the guidance that nobody has any idea where it comes from? Because people got very very confused. Like suddenly the president of the country, you know, saying that hydroxyquinine, you know, medication to. Treat malaria was was a panacea, you know. It, talking at a press conference about people, uh, you know, ingesting Clorox or a self cleaning uh, substance and, and and so on, and it, it's totally. I mean, it's even very very dangerous uh, dangerous stuff. At the same time, ignoring knowledge uh, because of the politicization of of this pandemic. In which it became almost a, a global spectacle, what happened to, here in the U.S. has happened to a, a great degree in Europe, uh, so to some degree in Europe, Latin America, on, but not to the level that it has happened in, in, in the U.S. or, or with uh, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, as well, a very similar situation. So that is something, Jen, that I would love to talk with you more about.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm glad you, it's funny you mentioned Brazil because I, have a question sort of teed up. I actually just happened to read a headline from an article earlier today about Brazil, about their relative success in the vaccination program, despite having an anti-vaxxer for a president, right? And um, I, I thought it was interesting because, and I'd be curious to hear your your thinking on that or your your knowledge, you know, and how that kind of uh, sits in your experience, because in the article, what I, what I caught onto and appreciated um, was a lot of discussion around the level of trust that Brazilians have for science, for public health programs. There's a baseline level of trust in in that component of society, probably very different from the US. And I admit it, I don't know the history of Brazil anywhere near like I know the history of the US, so I don't know the origins of, of that. But in the article, there's a quote from an official that basically said, that's all well and good, and it may be a big ingredient for our success, but we can't rest on our laurels. The quote is, trust is not the same as understanding or of literacy. And in the article, he's saying that because he's suggesting we can't just rely on trust. We need to build science literacy. We need to build understanding. But I thought that was interesting because I think in the U.S. it's almost the reverse. We we tend to think the solution is to just increase science literacy. And if they understand the science, then that'll solve things. When in reality, literacy without trust is not any, any good. So I guess, Rafael, I'm just curious if you talk a little bit about that, because I found that so compelling and interesting and, and what you're describing kind of dovetails. What what are the strategies? What is at work?
2: Yeah. So the comparison of Brazil and the U.S. is really uh, an, a natural experiment. It's like a, a dream for us who work in public health and epidemiology, because in uh, both countries, uh, were very heavily hit uh, by the pandemic when they had presidents that uh, didn't believe in science, that were questioning every single uh, evidence-based recommendation, and so on. The big difference between the two countries, the bottom line, is how much more Brazil, uh, over decades, had invested in public health, in primary prevention, in addressing the social determinants of health. Uh, including a uh, for for insecurity i worked uh, a lot uh, in the uh, area of food insecurity in in brazil so in brazil the constitution it protects very heavily the right that all citizens have to uni- to universal healthcare so they have access to uh, government sponsored universal healthcare system they can purchase private uh, healthcare access if they want but uh, brazil is a uh, very very strong with regards to vaccine campaigns uh, way before uh, this pandemic happens uh, to the production of vaccines like I, I just don't understand why brazil didn't produce its own vaccines uh, during this this pandemic uh, cuba did uh, for example another example of a of a country that we don't want to say anything positive about it but They have developed two vaccines. Over 90% of their population has been vaccinated eh, for a while and eh, and so on. Eh, So essentially, people in Brazil eh, do have much stronger public health literacy compared to the population at large in the U.S. Eh, The people in Brazil actually saw, especially with the previous eh, administrations, the previous two, two decades in social protection, investments, and so on, really what happens for the good of all when socioeconomic inequities decline decline dramatically and access to education and access to healthy food and access to housing and access to water uh, and on and on gets improved uh, substantially. So my concern is that, you know, even now the approach in the U.S. is very biomedical. You know, we're not going to to be ready for the next pandemic if we think we're just going to have another set of so-called uh, magic vaccines and therapies and masks and uh, you know prophylaxis that is going to save us from the next uh, from the next uh, waves of other other pandemics which i believe they are going to be much more frequent, uh, like uh, and much stronger, like hurricanes and uh, flooding and, and 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 weather patterns as a result of, of of global warming. So, I would I would recommend really for your audience to learn a lot about countries like Brazil that have invested a lot in public health, how how that works in their countries, because that's what we need to address uh, and do a much better job with future pandemics. In addition, of course, to the funding of surveillance systems in key hotspots in the world, so that when it arises, we immediately know that it's coming and try to stop it in its tracks. The Trump administration defunded all that infrastructure that was left in place by, by President Barack Obama.
1: Yeah, I know it's interesting. I in what you're describing, I'm kind of hearing, you know, there's a lot that's getting away from that old-fashioned predict and control way of thinking, right? And and kind of trying to move more towards a sense and respond mindset, which is one thing to do as an individual or an organization. It's another thing to do as a society and a government. But um, you know, you mentioned briefly too the difference between taking a very biomedical approach to our response to a pandemic. There's there's some parallels there that I hear often between taking like a design thinking approach to something versus like an engineering approach. And I, as a person with both design and science in my own background and training, I often bristle at like this suggestion that design and science are somehow mutually exclusive. I secretly think they're the same. But I'm I'm curious, Raphael, if if there's is anything there that you're that you've seen or experienced, um, you know, regarding a, a mindset around our response to a pandemic, or even within the specific strategies, like how we communicate or how we empower communities, right at the local community level, to be the facilitators of some of these responses? Does the notion of taking a design-oriented mindset versus an engineering or biomedical mindset is that something that people even think about or talk about? Like in your work, if you said that, would anybody know what you mean, or is that not at all what you see in here no
2: no n- not at all, and and I do a lot of of uh, systems level and uh, human centered design work, uh, and they are not mutually exclusive you know in my in my world in my in my thinking, uh, obviously you know th- you need to have a systems level response, you need the health sector engaged, you need the social Protection sector. You need the education sector engaged. You need the early childhood sector engaged, and 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 also the, employ- in, in the labor sector. The, the all the stuff that has been happening now with r- radical changes in the way people work now, and, and 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 so on. And that's a systems issue. That's that's something that it, we need to invest in preparedness. You know that those systems know exactly what they need to do when. Pandemics like these are coming our way, but on the other hand, when it comes to delivering eh, the messages, to tailoring the messages, to providing the access eh, to the resources that are needed, in this case, like like masks, like vaccines, like testing, and eh, and and on and on. Eh, you know we really need to pay a lot of attention to the most vulnerable communities that we now don't have in the u s. health insurance. you know they have food insecurity, uh, they have housing insecurity, uh, and essentially, you know that's a work that we do at our prevention research research center to try to understand it, not only the needs but what do our communities want? How do they recommend that at the community level, at the town level, at the city level, we actually facilitate uh, the access and we persuade people to trust us, you know, to actually uh, believe that uh, if we're saying the mRNA vaccines are safe is because we are very certain, very, very certain uh, that, uh, that they are safe. Working with the pastors in the in the local churches, working with community-based organizations, doing canvassing, outreach, and so all of that is part of the work that we that we do. But it has to be in the communities. You know, we cannot continue with an approach that only if you have a good health insurance when you go to your doctor, then you will have access to to all of this. So. So I, th- I think uh, people-centered, human-centered design is very, very important for the translation of the scientific knowledge into the actual implementation of the, of the programs. And at the end of the day, the behavior change that is going to be required from the folks that are the most vulnerable to these and future pandemics.
1: You know, you... Even just in this conversation, you've echoed so much of what like Sam and I have talked about earlier and and I've talked about with so many others. There's a lot of there's frustration, I think, from a lot of people right now because we can so easily look at this was a miss. This was a miss. And like, sure, I understand. Hindsight is twenty twenty, So it's easy to see. But there are a lot a lot of people who work in different domains and Raphael, you mentioned the importance of being a systems thinking organization where we can bring convene, facilitate collaboration between these different domains each of these domains has experts have people that probably consider themselves very specialist in those domains but because of that they may not have a perspective or a vantage point across all of these domains And I just sense that so many people more and more are looking around and saying, we know how to do this right. Those people over there in that domain know how to do this right, communication. These people over here in delivery and infrastructure, they know how to do it right. These individuals over here, they know how to explain science right. Why aren't they talking to each other? Why aren't we actually doing it? We have the knowledge. Why aren't we? I'm curious, what do you think is the answer?
2: Lack of coordination. Lack of coordination that needs to, to start uh, from the top level to actually provide the resources so that this can be replicated all the way down to the county level, to the to the town level. The U.S. is a very tough cookie because it is very decentralized. I mean, I can go inside a restaurant in Connecticut in my town. All the waiters have to have masks. I can go into the next county. They don't have to wear it if they don't want to. So it's 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 that kind of of also very tough system that we have in the U.S. and look what is happening like in Florida, like where the the Republican governors versus the Democratic governors and uh, challenging all the way to the Supreme Court uh, mandates that all they are trying to to do is to keep us safe. You know that uh, you know how how can it be acceptable that a healthcare worker refuses to be vaccinated or a fireman or a teacher? Well. I'm very sorry, but someone that feels that way—I feel very strongly—they may not be in the right profession, because it is very clear the evidence, it is very clear the science, and it is not just about me, about you know me individually, but all the people I am—I am really serving, or even my family members, and and so on. And and another piece I, I wanted to to add in terms of the hesitation. So there was a lot of misinformation that spread about the vaccines causing infertility. So, you know, we should not stereotype people. We should listen to them, listen to their concerns and empower them. We can, I mean, I'm, I'm all for public health mandates when it comes to, you know, if you work in the healthcare sector, if you're a federal employee and, and on and on. But, you know, but first and foremost is much more effective if people do it. As it happened in Brazil, or the same way everybody's wearing masks in Mexico, where I am right now, because they know it works and they know it. So even though the government may not be eh, putting any kind of pressure on people to eh, to do it. So the persuasion that I like to see is the one that empowers people with knowledge. And back to that point you made before, Jane, I do think that people get science when it is communicated the right way. And, and truthful knowledge. Thank you both so
0: much. I mean, this conversation, I, we could keep going. It's so critically important to our future. But Raphael, thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise and perspective.
2: We appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. A pleasure being with you today.
0: Yeah, listeners, to see more of Raphael's work, go visit ysph.yale.edu. Okay, it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design. These are our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. This device I'm holding in my hands has definitely impacted me. So I started writing my book about how I started Design Museum Everywhere. It's been so fun. i anticipating probably like 13 chapters and I've written five. So I'm like deep in it. But what I found when I first started writing, and you know, I was using my laptop, was that like I instantly got distracted. I'd be like, type in away, and then like, oh, an email. Or even I'd be like, oh, I need to remember this fact from this event that Design Museum did in like 2011. And I'd go online and I'd look it up. And then uh, magically, I was also then starting to read about Spider-Man <laughs> and like, the new movie that's coming. I was like, I just, way too many apps and distractions. And so, As I often do, I was like talking to my wife and I'm always looking for like new tools. And we found this device, it's called the FreeWrite. Uh, It's by a company called Astro House. And they had the same problem with writing. And so what they've created here, it's like a little, it's like about half the size of a laptop. And it's like a high gloss black clamshell, really nicely made. And it's all white, white keyboard, but it's basically a word processor. It's a basically a little mini laptop and like full size, really nice keyboard, like clicky keys. And there's no apps. There's nothing. There's an e-ink display, just like a Kindle. The battery life that, you know, therefore is like days. Like you, this thing, a battery, you could use it for days and it wouldn't run out. So typically to me, it's been lasting like weeks without charging. But anyway, all you can do is type on this thing. There is like nothing else to do. There's like no files to organize. There's literally three buttons. A, B, C, and those are the three documents you can have. That's it. There are a couple of buttons for setting up the Wi-Fi because the cool thing is it will automatically sync with Dropbox or you can, there's a button here that says send. You can always send it right to your email. So you can get it off of this, but I have just loved this. I've written about 30,000 words on this and like way faster than I could ever write on my laptop. There's no distractions. The other thing that's interesting about it and it's actually kind of like anti-design is it's very difficult to go back and edit on here. There's no arrow keys, there's no cursor or mouse, so you can't like go back and like highlight a word. So these 30,000 words are riddled with spelling mistakes and like notes to myself, but the whole idea is like you just keep going. Go 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 and figure it out, you know, figure it out. It's all about getting it out of the brain onto the page, if you will. So I love this thing. I've been spending a lot of time with it. It's called the free write. We'll post the link. And yeah, when you do read my book, hopefully sometime later this year, you will know how I actually pulled it off. And it was with this little word processing device. Jen, what are you thinking about this week?
1: In the spirit of honoring design being everywhere, right? Even among folks who don't call themselves designers. And sometimes that's my favorite design. I have a good friend of mine who a couple years ago, uh, she had an idea for an invention, and just to tee that up, you know, she is your. Um, she was an English teacher at the time, living her her day job, but then in the evenings, she's a pole dance instructor, and uh, I know her through that. So both she and I do pole dance for fitness among other aerial arts. But what it comes down to is she identified a need. She was doing this long, a long enough time. She would watch as students would go at times during class to put on their giant heels, right? So because some people choose to wear giant, like six, seven, eight inch shoes, And they take a little time to like buckle on and then they'd get them on and they'd realize, oh, crap, I forgot to put my knee pads on. And they have to take their shoes back off, slide these knee pads up their knee, uh, you know, and it was kind of a pain. She's like, what if knee pads had Velcro so we could just strap them on and off? And those do exist out in the world, uh, like volleyball knee pads um, and like some really heavy duty knee pads that like guys wear on the tarmac at the airport. But she was like, those are too bulky. They don't serve our purpose. So she had this idea for a, a pole dance or really just dancer knee pad that had velcro and i have watched as a friend because i didn't help her in any form really other than just moral support she never asked for like design support i've given it at times but i've observed as this english teacher with no design training at all identified a need bought a bunch of things to try out to take apart to cut to sew she essentially prototyped and then tested it with people in the studio where she teaches made revisions did many iterations did research to figure out how she could find somebody to make them for her, a cut and sew team. She found a local cut and sew team so that to this day, even though she's still making them and many of them, um, they're all made by hand by folks local in Massachusetts. And at this point she has kind of invested in this business and this is what she does now as her main living. Wow. And, uh, and I just love to share this as a story partly because that's design and anybody who wants to argue that that's not human centered design, can come at me. Um, And and at the same time, I think it's important to give examples too, where she didn't need to go to design school. And she didn't have a day where she was like, you know what, I think I need to go get a boot camp certificate to figure out how to do this the right way. What she did was she listened to people, she iterated on her ideas, she took that feedback, she figured out how to make things better, she solved a real need. Um, and she has continued to grow and succeed through that so they're called bees knees knee pads if you want to throw a plug in there for anybody that's you know into that world you guys can google and find her but cheers to good design
0: that's a great story yeah i love when people just get into it and make it happen that's awesome it's great to hear thank you for sharing that listeners if you have a great weekly dose of good design and you want me to share it on the pod Feel free to tweet it at me, at Sam Aquilano, and then I will share it right here on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here, Jen. It's a great conversation, big topic, but it's great to have you break it down for us.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff.
0: That's our show. Again, I want to thank Jen Brazelli and Dr. Rafael Perez-Escamilla for joining us. Thank you all for listening to what a cool conversation. I hope you learned as much as I did. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast right in the menu there. You can always find the latest from us on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at designmuseumeverywhere. And you can also find us on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. You can also get our weekly email newsletter where you get all the news from Design Museum, including upcoming events, upcoming podcast episodes, magazine issues, exhibitions, you name it, right in your inbox. Check that out on our webpage. You can sign up right there. And then please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design Is Everywhere anywhere you listen to podcasts. Those reviews and ratings really help people find the show and help us keep chatting about design every week. So thank you so much for checking that out and doing that. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amory Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave for the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere. Thanks for being with us, and we'll talk again next week.